of the entire Bible. And we're not going to do it chronologically, which is like, you know, this happened and then this happened and that happened. But we're going to do a survey of all the 66 books of the Bible. And it works out mathematically to about an average of seven minutes per book. Uh, some books will get a little bit more time than others, but roughly seven minutes on average. And my vision, my goal in this study is to get you to read the Bible on your own. Um, and so I'm going to give you sort of a larger structure of how all the books fit. And sort of the format is we're going to talk about the book, what it's basically about, uh, its structure, its place in the whole story. And then we're going to read one passage per book, only one to give you a sense of flavor of that book. And hopefully, you'll get excited about reading scripture, and you'll read it on your own. So today, we're going to look at the first five books of the Bible. Um, it's called uh, the Torah, which means law. Um, even though it's not all law, but a, um, a significant portion of it is law. It's also called the Pentateuch. Penta means five. Tuch is, uh, I believe, Latin for volumes, so five volumes. And these five books all fit together as a unit, right? They have an integrity and a wholeness together. And the Torah is foundational for understanding the rest of Scripture. It tells us the creation, uh, the account of the creation, the fall, and then the beginning of uh, redemption in this family of Abraham and then in the nation of Israel. And we also get glimpses of the new heavens and the new earth. But it tells us the beginning of the story, and so it's foundational. And in many ways, the rest of the Bible is a, is a deliberate, evocative echo of the Torah, right? So um, chronologically, wh what does the Torah cover? It covers the beginning of the story, which is creation through Eden, through the patriarchs, through Exodus, all the way to the wilderness. And then the end of the Torah ends at the end of the wilderness, um, right before the conquest. Right, so that's the time period we'll be looking at. The Torah is mostly narrative history, but with large sections of law uh, and a few uh, poetry, a few sections of songs. All right, so that's my introduction. Let's go. All right, introduction to Genesis. So Genesis is the story of beginnings. It's very distinct from the rest of the Pentateuch. Uh, because the other four books, Exodus through Deuteronomy, has, um, it's more detailed. Uh, it feels more like a first-hand account. Um, and it's closer in time to the author, to the narrator, right, who's writing this. But Genesis is deep, old history. And it has a more stylized uh, narrative, right? Um, it covers vast tracts of time. And there are two parts to Genesis. There's what's called the primeval. Primeval just means really, really old. Primeval history, that's chapters 1 through 11. And then the second part is the family of Abraham, chapters 12 through 50. Let me just check if we're actually recording. We are, all right. Um, so the text we're going to look at is the Abrahamic covenant. Um, let me write this down. So this is very... This is so important. This is so foundational. So we're going to spend some time thinking through this, okay? So the Abrahamic Covenant. 
The Abrahamic Covenant is actually um, spelled out and outlined in three chapters, um, Genesis chapter 12, 15, and then 17, which gives you a sense of its importance. It's repeated three times. Um, and so before we talk about the Abrahamic Covenant, we have to ask the more preliminary question, what is a covenant? So here is a three-minute and three-minute synopsis of covenant theology. All right, so what is a covenant? Covenant is the organizing principle of the entire Bible. And here's the definition of a covenant. A covenant is a binding personal relationship in which there are blessings and curses. Blessings if you keep the covenant, curses if you break the covenant. So, for example, a classic covenant is a marriage. It's a binding personal relationship. If you keep the covenant, if you love your spouse, if you're faithful to your spouse, you enjoy the blessings of the covenant, marital happiness. If you break the covenant, if you do not love your spouse, if you're unfaithful to your spouse, you experience the curses of the covenant, marital discord and then divorce. So that's a covenant. Now, this is very important. There are two basic covenants in the Bible, okay? Two basic covenants. There is a covenant of works. Okay? And then there is a covenant of grace. Okay? A covenant of works is what we see in Eden, okay? Um, it was given to Adam, and it said, if you obey the law, the law being do not eat of the forbidden fruit, if you obey, Adam will live. If Adam disobeys, if he breaks faith with the covenant, then he will die. Very simple. Now, this principle is very important. A covenant never ends. It is never annulled. It is never um, canceled. It continues on forever. And this is, in fact, the principle uh, discussed in, by Paul in Galatians 3.17. We'll look at that a little bit later. But in Galatians 3.17, Paul says every subsequent covenant, and there are multiple covenants in the Bible, always builds on top of the other, and it never contradicts the prior one. So the covenant of works is conditional. And it depends on the obedience of Adam. Covenant of grace, on the other hand, is unconditional. It does not depend on obedience. And it is promissory. It's based on a promise. And the covenant of grace begins in the garden after Adam and Eve uh, fail the covenant of works, right? It begins at the end of uh, Genesis chapter 3. But we see the fullness of it in, uh, with Abraham in the covenant of the Abrahamic Covenant. So the Abrahamic Covenant, okay, is a covenant of grace. It is the covenant of grace. Okay, so this is very crucial. It is the paradigm covenant of grace in the Bible. And uh, what it says, what the covenant of grace says, is that God will fulfill the covenant of works for us in our place. Does that make sense? So God will suffer the penalties of breaking the covenant, the curses that should fall on us, and then he, in our place, will keep the covenant 
for us. He will fulfill the law. He will um, obey perfectly, and then his righteousness is credited to us. So the covenant of grace is God substituting himself for us, standing in our place and fulfilling it, okay? So how it works then is um, you have the covenant of works, It goes on forever, right? It, it's never annulled. But then on top of the covenant of works, you have the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of grace. Does that make sense? All right. Another way to think about the covenant of the Abrahamic covenant is that God establishes a beachhead in the covenant and in the Abrahamic covenant of the new creation. So what do I mean by beachhead? Um, if you guys know uh, World War II, uh, when the Allies uh, landed at Normandy, right? It was like this little beachhead in which they were eventually going to reclaim or reconquer Europe for the Allies, right? And so the Abrahamic Covenant is a beachhead of the kingdom of God. And so you have the world, right? The world belongs to Satan. Because of Adam and Eve's fall, they thought they were in control, but actually they were minions of Satan. They were uh, patsies of Satan. So now Satan is the lord of this world. But what happens is in the Abrahamic covenant, God establishes a beachhead. He lands on Normandy. And it begins with one man, Adam. I'm sorry, uh, Abraham. And then Abraham, that beachhead grows into a family, his family. And then that family grows into a nation, right? So it starts like this. And it starts out really small. And then in the New Testament, that nation of Israel has grafted in Gentile believers. And it becomes the church. And the church continues to expand. It goes worldwide, globally. Do you see? The beachhead is expanding until finally, at the end of history, the king will return and the whole world is his. Right? He's, he's, he's conquered the whole world for Christ. I mean, for, uh, in, in the, uh, for God. So, the Abrahamic covenant is the beginning of God's redemption of the world. And therefore, I want you to understand that the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace. It's the gospel. Okay? And if it's the gospel, how do we fit, how do we fit in? Romans chapter 4 says, you and I, we are children of Abraham. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? We'll look at that, actually. God says, look at the stars. Your descendants will be as many as the stars. When Abraham looked up into the sky, you and I were up there. One of those stars represented us, right? So let's look at the text, Genesis chapter 15. I'll read it for you uh, since I'm the only one wearing the recorder. Um, but let me read, and then I'll comment. Genesis 15, this is the Abrahamic covenant. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But, Abraham, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given, uh, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So let me just make a few comments. First of all, in verse 1, you see in the Abrahamic covenant a promise of blessing. And so notice that the, uh, the, the, notice the covenant is unconditional and it's promissory. Very important that we understand the structure of a promise. If I promise you something, it doesn't depend on you. Right? If I say, I promise on, uh, on Thursday I'll meet you at the cafe at 10 a.m., it doesn't matter what happens to you that week or even if you show up, I'm going to be there if I keep my promise. Or if I say I'm going to buy you this present on Christmas, it's a promise, right? It's going to happen. So it's based on grace, not on Abraham's obedience. The second thing is notice that this promise consists of two parts. There's a promise of offspring. That's verse 5, right? Abraham's offspring will be as numerous as the stars. And then there's a promise of land. This is very important too. Verse 7, God promises to give Abraham the land of Canaan. Now, what does offspring and land have to do with our salvation? The answer, again, has to do with this idea of the beachhead, right? In Genesis 12, verse 3, God says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so it starts with the family. It starts with this plot of land, the land of Canaan. And then it's going to spread outward to the whole world. And what you have in Abraham and what you have in the promised land is a foretaste of the new creation. Right, that God's people are going to eventually dwell in the new heavens and the new earth. And then how do we receive this salvation? How do we receive the gospel? We receive it by faith. Verse 6 is crucial. Let me read verse 6 again. And, and God said to Abram, uh, I'm sorry, and Abram believed the Lord, and God counted to Abraham as righteousness. This is uh, referred to, Paul quotes it in Galatians chapter 3, Romans chapter 4. And this is very foundational. The reason why um, Paul continues to quote and refer to the Abrahamic covenant is because he's talking about the gospel. And he's showing us that our, our, our inclusion in the kingdom of God, right? our salvation is not based on moral performance or law-keeping, but on faith. right? Abraham, God didn't say, if you believe, then you will get these things. God says, I promise to give you them, right? And Abraham receives it by faith. And so Abraham's faith shows us that um, faith is an open hand that receives the gift, right? Faith is admitting that you have no good works. So here we have justification by faith alone. That's Genesis. On to Exodus. Any questions about Genesis? Probably the longest we're going to spend on any book in this whole series, but it's foundational, so I wanted to explain any questions on Genesis? All right. Exodus. Faster pace. All right. Um, so at the end of Genesis, you have a family. Uh, it's an extended large family of 50 people. And then at the beginning of Exodus, you have um, now a nation. So let me, let me draw this out. So, um, where are we? So this is Genesis. And so this is now Exodus. 
Um, and what is Exodus? Exodus is the story of God's people being rescued from oppression from a, the world's greatest superpower at that time, which is Egypt. Okay? And it foreshadows another story in the New Testament when God's people again are under oppression, this time by another, um, uh, the greatest superpower of that time, which is Rome. Do you see? And so there's a, par- there's a deliberate parallel. And therefore, the gospel story in the New Testament is a, an ec- is a, is a, um, is a new exodus, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's exodus all over again. So when we read the story of Exodus, we're really thinking about the story of Jesus and the story of the Gospels. So there are two parts to Exodus. Chapters 1 through 18 is the story of how they come out of Egypt, the, the Hebrew people. Chapters 19 through 40 is the covenant, the law being given at Mount Sinai. And this is the Mosaic covenant. So we talked about the Abrahamic covenant, right? Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of works. I'm sorry, did I say works? Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of grace. And now let's talk about the Mosaic covenant. Mosaic just simply means um, Moses. Mosaic covenant, all right. So the Abrahamic covenant is clearly a covenant of grace. It's promissory. It's unconditional. It doesn't depend on Abraham's obedience. What about the Mosaic covenant? This is going to be fun. Fun for me, maybe, uh, at least. All right. So let's think about this. Covenant of works given at, uh, given at the Garden of Eden to Adam. And the covenant of grace is given to Abraham, okay, in the Abrahamic covenant. So what is the, co- what is the Mosaic covenant? And when I say the Mosaic covenant, by the way, th- we're not just talking about the period of the Exodus. We're talking about this entire period from the, uh, the book of Exodus down through Deuteronomy. That includes all of it together collectively, it's the Mosaic Covenant. Now, the Mosaic Covenant sounds a lot like the Covenant of Grace in many passages. Let me give you an example. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Listen to this. Right? This is God's self-disclosure to Moses. He says, The Lord, the Lord, listen, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Right? So God is merciful, God is gracious. But in other ways, it sounds a lot like the covenant of works. There's a lot of conditional if-then language. If you obey the laws, if you, particularly at the end of Deuteronomy, we'll, we'll get to that, if you uh, fulfill and keep the covenant, blessings, life, prosperity. But if you break the covenant, curses, death, invasion, disease, exile, So, which is it? Remember I said earlier that no covenant overturns the previous covenant. Very important principle. Um, This is stated clearly by Paul in Galatians 3.17. I think Galatians 3.17 is sort of the key to understanding how all the covenants interact. This is what Paul says. I didn't print it for you in your handout, but listen carefully to, to the logic of what Paul is saying, okay? So, so you, here you have, um, uh, I'll call it the Edenic Covenant. Okay. 
Okay, this is the covenant of works. And then you have the Abrahamic covenant, right? It's a covenant of grace. It doesn't overturn the covenant of works. It fulfills the covenant of works, right? God is our, 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 our um, substitute. And then you have the Mosaic covenant. Okay? So listen to Galatians 3.17. Paul writes, The law... What does he mean by the law? He's talking about um, the Mosaic covenant. He says, The law, which came 430 years after, Mo, uh, after Abraham, right? So he's talking about the, the event on Mount Sinai came 450 years after, you know, uh, Genesis 12.15 after the Abrahamic covenant, listen to this, the law which came 430 years after Abraham does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Let me read it again, okay? Galatians 3.17, the law which came 430 years after Abraham does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The Mosaic covenant is not a rude interruption of the covenant of grace. God doesn't say to Abraham, you're saved by grace in a coming Savior, and then he says to Israel, never mind, you're actually saved by obedience to the law, right? And therefore, the Mosaic covenant, built on top of the Abrahamic covenant, it is still a covenant of grace. It teaches salvation by faith in Christ. There is no contradiction to the Abrahamic covenant. Does that make sense? And so let me show you a passage. Um, the one passage we're going to look at, Exodus chapter 24. This is when uh, Moses comes down from the mountain, Mount Sinai. Let me read to you verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, right? So he's laying out all of these laws and rules, regulations of the Mosaic covenant. And all the people answered with one voice. This is very important. Keep track of this. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Right? The people says, we will keep the covenant. We promise to keep all the, the laws. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, right? This is the Mosaic covenant again. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, here it is again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Okay? And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So, here's the story, right? It's very dramatic. Moses comes down with the law, and he's reading the law to them. He's reading all the, the rules and regulations, and the people repeatedly say, We will keep the law. We will obey. We will, we, we will um, adhere to all the commandments. And then, in response to the, the people making these pledges, Moses takes the blood of, sac of a sacrificial animal, he takes the blood, and then he splashes it 
all over the people, right? And what does that mean? It's a vivid image of the necessity of a substitute, right? What does this sound like? Sounds like the Abrahamic covenant, essentially, right? At the beginning of the law, God is clearly telling the people, you need a savior, right? The people are saying, we will obey, and God says, let me splash some blood on you. This is a prefigurement of the blood of Christ. Um, but here's where it gets complex, um, and this is where the fun begins. The Mosaic Covenant is also secondarily a covenant of works. Okay? Paul, in Galatians 3.12, so Galatians 3, he's talking about the relationship between the Abrahamic and, Abraham, uh, and the Mosaic Covenant. In Galatians 3.12, Paul says that the Mosaic Covenant is of works. And in 3.12, he cites Leviticus 18, remember, which I said Leviticus is all part of the Mosaic Covenant. Leviticus 18, verse 5, which says, obey and you will live. And, and uh, Paul cites that as a principle of works contrary to the gospel. So what is going on, right? So, what, so Paul is using the Mosaic Covenant as an example of what is not grace, right? So here's the answer. Please listen, this is the key, okay? The Mosaic Covenant reintroduces the principle of law, of works, as a condition to stay in the land. Okay? If the people obey the law, if, so there's a conditionality, if then, if the people stay in the land, I mean, sorry, if the people obey the law, then they stay in the land. If the people break the law, then they are expelled from the land, exiled from the land. What is going on? The purpose of this whole story is to re-dramatize the story of the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, what happens? Adam is placed in the garden, he's given the law, and when he breaks the law, he's expelled from the garden. If you paid attention to the details of the story, he's expelled east of Eden, right? There's a whole Steinbeck book about that, right? East of Eden. Now, Israel is placed in a garden-like land. The promised land is described in garden-like language. And they're given the law. And when Israel breaks the law, they are expelled, right? They go into exile. Which direction do they go into exile? East, towards Babylon, right? The parallel is deliberate. And so Israel, in the promised land, is reenacting the story of Adam in the garden. And what is the purpose of that? The purpose of reenacting the story is to show the people, listen, the utter futility of law-keeping. That their only hope is a savior, that a substitute has to come and stand in their place. And so the entire Mosaic Covenant, and the Mosaic Covenant, by the way, it's stipulated, spelled out in these four books, but it continues and it goes on all the way through the end of the Old Testament, right? Until the New Covenant. We'll talk about the New Covenant when we get there. But the Mosaic Covenant is this multi-hundred-year, multi-book, long drama to show us this one lesson. The one long lesson is that the law is a dead end to salvation and that Christ the Savior is the only way. It's drawn out because in the Garden of Eden, it goes really fast. Adam breaks the law, boom, you're out of the garden. Israel breaks the law <laughs> and then... 
They sort of are punished. They sort of are cursed. But then God sends a prophet and says, will you not try again? And the people say, we'll try again. And then they break the law, and then they experience some curses, some punishment. And then God sends a prophet, and then the people say, we'll, we'll, we'll really obey this time. And then on and on and on and on and on and on and on, until finally it, it's drilled into our understanding the law is a dead end. We cannot keep the law. We have to have a savior. We have to have a substitute. All right, so that's Exodus. Now on to Leviticus. Any questions about Exodus? All right, Leviticus. Leviticus is the only book in the Torah without any historical narrative. And most people find it to be very dry. If you've ever committed to yourself, read the Bible all the way through a year, I commend that to you, but most people die in Leviticus. <laughs> um, if you're going to read the Bible through the year, save Leviticus to the end, I think, I think is the lesson. Leviticus is a book of ritual holiness laws. It describes uh, the duties of the priests at the temple. And so this is where the title comes from. Leviticus comes from uh, the Levites who were uh, a tribe of priests in Israel. And it goes into meticulous detail on various offerings, feasts, and the vows. And we're going to look at Leviticus 13 as an example chapter. Uh, Leviticus 13 deals with leprosy, and it, and it, it, and it spans three chapters, 14, uh, 13, 14, and 15, all on leprosy, right? So let me give you a sample, a taste, okay? So Leviticus 13, I'll read to you verses just 1 through 3 for now. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then, then he shall be brought to Aaron, the priest, or to one of his sons, the priest, and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body, and if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. Now, by the way, that's just the, the beginning summary statement. Then, for the next several chapters, it goes into, it's like a medical text on how you could distinguish skin abrasions, um, boils, any kind of skin abnormality, and how do you distinguish that from a true case of leprosy or if it's ju you're just having an outbreak of pimples or something, right? Um, and then let me read to you, skip to verse 45, okay? Verse 45 says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and the hair of his, hair, of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, right? Wherever he goes, he has to say that. Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone, and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. So, what is the point of Leviticus? Leviticus is a series of drama skits, right? They're dramatic skits. They're these vivid, illustrative demonstrations and so when Leviticus talks about what is clean and unclean, it's really talking about what is holy and what is unholy, what is sin. 
And the reason why it spends so much time on leprosy is because leprosy is a vivid picture of sin. In the ancient world, leprosy was a horrific disease. Um, You looked disgusting. You were repugnant to society. You were highly contagious. And it was accentuated by the fact that if you were an Israelite, you had to wear haggard dress. And everywhere you go, you had to cry out, unclean, unclean, to make sure that nobody comes near you and touches you. And you were forbidden to be part of human society. And what is that telling us? It's a drama skit. It's a vivid picture of our sin. It shows us that we are repugnant, we are disgusting to the holiness of God. And it shows us that we are alienated, that sin alienates us from community and from others. And I think that if you read it from that vantage point, the the book of Leviticus becomes more interesting. Um, And here's a last postscript. Um, In the Gospels, Jesus declares all of the clean laws void. He takes the entire book of Leviticus and he says it no longer applies. Why is that? Because Jesus fulfills the clean laws for us. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, every one of us, Jesus is telling us, is now clean before God. Um, So that's the book of Leviticus. Any questions on that? Yes. That's true. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, Jesus had a debate with the Pharisees, right? And he basically says, what makes you unclean isn't what's on the outside of you, but what's on the inside. Out of the heart comes all these evil deeds, right? And so what he was telling the Pharisees is you missed the whole point of the, of the drama. You flunked drama class, right? Um, because the, the Pharisees were saying, ah, so leprosy or dirt, these are what make you unclean. If you could just be clean enough, then we will truly be clean. And the whole point of the story is no, it's to show you what's going on in the inside. And Jesus fulfills the clean laws because he dies on the cross, right, so that um, his righteous record is credited to us. And we'll talk about this in the new covenant. He sends the spirit to give us a new heart to love God, to truly obey him in a way that we could not in the old covenant. Does that answer your question? Or? Yeah, he avoids the external laws because the external laws are no longer necessary. The whole point of the Mosaic Covenant is to tell you you are inadequate before the law. The law cannot save you. So you are disgusting. You are a leper. You are filthy, dirty sinners. But now because of Jesus, we're clean. All right. Uh, introduction to Numbers. Uh, numbers actually sounds like the most boring book in the Bible. <laughs> But actually, it's not. It's actually one of the more interesting, exciting books of the Bible. But the, the book, the, the name Numbers does come from the beginning of the book, in which uh, chapters 1 through 10 is a long, extended census. It's a 10-chapter census. It's a long list of tribal population count. If you're going to read the Bible through in a year, I recommend so that you don't die skipping the first 10 chapters and then going back to it at the end. Maybe you can read it after (laughs) Leviticus. Um, And then, starting from chapters 10, verse 11, through chapters 36, is the story of the wilderness. So it's the story of the wilderness wandering. So let me just draw a map. All right, so this is the Mediterranean. Uh, This is Egypt. 
This is the Sinai Peninsula. Um, and then this is the Promised Land. Okay? So Exodus is, the story of Exodus is the people traveling down to Mount Sinai. We don't actually know where Mount Sinai is, um, but let's just say this is Mount Sinai. Okay? And then uh, the book of Numbers is the people going from Mount Sinai, wandering through the wilderness, and then right up to the cusp of the promised land, land in the land of Amnon. And this journey from Mount Sinai to the promised land actually is a three-day walk. You could do it in three days, but it ends up taking them 40 years. The reason for that is because um, they send spies to scout out the promised land, and the spies come back and say, we can't do it. They're giants who live in the land. And so for their faithlessness, God says, this generation will die in the wilderness, and the next generation will go into the promised land. Again, remember, the whole point of the book of Exodus is show us the futility of the law. So the problem is the first generation. You need the second generation. The second generation also fails. No generation truly keeps the law, but let's go on. So the wilderness journey, here's the paradigm that I want us to understand it. The wilderness journey is a picture of, of the Christian life. So here's, here's how you could think of it um, in terms of geography. Egypt is slavery, a land of slavery. Slavery um, not just to the harsh whips of Egyptian taskmasters, but slavery to sin. Okay, this is dominion, bondage under sin. The promised land is a picture of heaven. Right? Remember I said it's a beachhead of the new heavens and the new earth. So we're rescued out of sin, slavery to sin, and we're brought to, we're being taken to heaven. What then is this journey in between? It's the Christian life. What is the Christian life? It is a long, long journey, full of trials and suffering, full of deprivation and scorpions and the scorching heat. And you have to endure hardship. You have to endure suffering and adversity. And you have to live not by sight, but by faith. One of the summary verses for the wilderness journey is Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. This is what it says. He, right, God, let you hunger so that, so as to show you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the whole point is to show the people of God to live by faith, not by what they see, not ultimately even on bread, but by the very word of God. So the, 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 the passage we're going to look at is Numbers chapter 21, famous story of the bronze serpent. By the way, every passage I'm going to look at in each of the books will pretty much be the most famous or <laughs> next to the most famous passage um, because I'm giving you a sense of what the book is. Numbers 21, let me read it to you, starting in verse 4. From Mount Hor, so this is the story of the bronze serpent, right? From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the, to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, right? They're grumbling, they're complaining. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. 
so the people are full of grumbling. No food here, no water. We don't like this, this thing. What is this thing you brought us into? <laughs> right? We don't like it. Right? And what is the point of the wilderness? The point of the wilderness is there's something more essential than even food. That the greatest need of the people is God. And their greatest problem is sin and their faithlessness. And so this is how God illustrates it. Verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now the snakes are fiery here because when the snakes bit you, you experience this intense burning and thirst and then you would die. Um, And people say, well, that sounds horrible. But actually, it was incredibly gracious of God because God was showing his people the consequences of their sin, the sin of grumbling and disbelief. And the poison in the snakes is a picture of the poison in their hearts. And I want to show you that it was entirely fitting. God was actually being incredibly gracious because he was making external what was already internal in their hearts. So much of the Mosaic Covenant is actually showing people what their sins are through dramatic historical events like what happened here and through the holiness laws, right? And so the intense burning and thirst that the people experienced when they were bitten by the snakes is to show the people what alienation from God is, right? To be cut off from the true source of food, true source of of water and life. Verse 7, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he, would, he, the person, would look at the bronze serpent and live. So it's very interesting, this very graphic story. Um, Moses gets a pole and he raises up on a pole a bronze serpent. Now, the fact that it's a serpent, what does the serpent immediately remind you of? Which story? Yes, the Garden of Eden, right? What does the serpent represent? It's very symbolic. The serpent represents our rebellion our sin, right? Now, it's, it's, it's um, layers and symbols upon symbols. So the serpent is raised up on a pole. Now, for us as modern people, we don't really, um, we, it doesn't really uh, resonate with us, but when you raise up something on a pole, what do you do? Like, after victory in a battle, what do you raise up on a pole? Yeah, you raise up the head or the body of your vanquished enemies, right? Um, It's a sign of utter victory. And so uh, to display your victory. Now, instead of putting the people up on a pole, (laughs) right, which they deserve as as rebels, God puts a picture of their sin on a pole, right? What does this mean? Uh, Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, verse 14. Listen to this. As Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so the bronze serpent is a picture of the cross, of Jesus being lifted up on the cross, and our sins, right? This is why it's a serpent. Um, Our sins being placed on Jesus, and it is he who is the vanquished enemy, right? Who receives the punishment and the penalty of rebellion. So it shows us once again that the Mosaic Covenant is all about grace. 
It's grace, shot through with grace. Every story is about salvation in Christ. And here's the pattern. God gives the people the law. They break the law. And then God gives the people a provision of grace, which points them to Jesus Christ. Um, One more gospel connection. I can't help myself. Um, The story here, you'll remember in the gospel stories, Jesus goes also into the wilderness, right? Um, And he goes in there to be tempted, to suffer deprivation. Do you remember Satan's first temptation? Uh, 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 Temptation, Satan says to Jesus, turn these stones into bread. Right? What he was basically tempting Jesus is, the, the essence of the temptation is, why should your life be so hard? <laughs> why do you have to suffer deprivation and hardship? And why don't you just use your power and take the shortcut and create bread for yourself? And how does Jesus respond? In Matthew, he responds with Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He quotes it. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so what is, what is that story telling us? That Jesus is the true Israelite. He, is the, he, he stands in our place and he fulfills all the tests that the people of God fail to keep. All right, so that's the, uh, that's, that's the book of uh, Numbers. Now on to Deuteronomy. Let me just see the time. Okay, we're going to have to go fast. No questions. All right. Um, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is basically a sermon manuscript. (laughs) It's a text of Moses' final sermons. It's actually three speeches, but they all flow together. And Moses gives this sermon on the plains of Moab right before they enter the promised land. And Deuteronomy is therefore like a theological reflection on uh, the whole journey of Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And so it's full of gospel content, and it's reminders of God's grace, and it's also a great deal of warnings. So the passage we're going to read is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse, starting in verse 10. Listen to this. I'll do a running commentary. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat it and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So what is, the, what is Moses saying? He's saying that, that when they come into the promised land, everything is going to be fully built and developed. The cities, the dwellings, all of the wells will be there without any effort of the Israelites to create for themselves. What does that tell us? Remember, it's a picture of heaven, um, that salvation is by grace. People did not earn it. They do not have to labor for it, but it is given to them as a gift. Then Moses says, take care lest you forget the Lord. So this is the converse lesson of the wilderness. The The lesson of the wilderness is God is sufficient. Even in a dry and weary land, God is all you need. When God is all you have, God is all you need. That's the point of the wilderness. Now, the, the point of Canaan, the point of the promised land, is the exact opposite point. Right? It's the exact opposite conditions of the wilderness. It's a lush land. It's a rich land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. That expression, milk and honey, doesn't really say a lot to us. But in the ancient world, it was like, oh, first of all, where do you get milk, you city dwellers, you urbanites? Where do you get milk? From a cow. Let me tell you, okay, before the day of industrial farms, keeping a cow, keeping it alive, keeping it fed was a lot of work. Very expensive to own a cow. 
So it says it's flowing with milk. That was just unbelievable. Where do you get honey? Honey comes from a wild source, bees, wild honey. Honey was the sweetest natural thing that you could find in the ancient world. It's flowing with honey, flowing with milk. It's inc- a land of incredible riches. And, God is, and, Mo- and Moses is saying, in that place of plenty, don't forget God. He's the source behind it all. Let's read verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Verse 14, you shall not go after other gods. I'm going to preach on that later today. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So, I want to focus on verse 14 and verse uh, 15. Why don't go after other gods? It goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant is that it's a beachhead, right? A little circle of holiness, a little spit of land of purity. And then the people of God are to be a, a holy people, a holy nation, a holy land. And so what Moses is saying is don't intermingle with the Canaanites. Don't intermarry with them. Don't worship their gods. Remain separate and distinct. Become a light to Gentiles. Draw in the Gentiles to God. Live holy and attractional lives. Now, we know, of course, that Israel ultimately fails to do this. But God establishes a new Israel. In Romans chapter 11, um, He gra- very important chapter, he grafts on wild shoots, the Gentiles, into the olive tree of Israel. He breaks off all the broken branches. And so the church then is Israel, right? Israel is the church in the Old Testament. The church is Israel in the New Testament. The church is not a nation state, but a dispersed people. And they have the exact same mandate to live holy, attractional lives, pointing people to God, um, not to intermarry with the the Canaanites. Verse 17, um, you shall keep, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Listen to this. That it may go well with you. Listen to conditional language. That it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to, his, to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. So what is that saying? Moses is reminding the people once again that staying in the land is conditional. Verse 18, do what is right that it may go well with you, that you may go in and possess the land. And so remember, again, what is the whole point of the Mosaic Covenant? The futility of the law. It's a repetition of the covenant of works. And in the end, the people experience curse, the curses, and they experience exile. But this is the point, this is something that really confused me when I was, um, when I used to read the Old Testament uh, as a younger person. Does that mean that they lost their salvation? No. Even as the people were experiencing exile, they were, they were experiencing failure of the law with respect to the land, but they were still saved by grace. They still had to have faith in the coming of a Savior, Jesus Christ. And so their disobedience doesn't imperil their salvation, but their disobedience in the end only um, uh, uh, expels them from the land. So that's the, that's the thing. I have time for maybe one or maybe two questions. Any questions? Yes. Yeah. And then the law that you gave that was 
Yeah. If you have a ring for its own four horses, then it makes no sense to sacrifice it. Yeah. Yeah, so Yom Kippur is for unintentional sins, not for um, sins with direct malice involved, right? I, I know what you're talking about, but I haven't thought about it sufficiently to have an intelligent answer for you. So I will, I will plead further the necessity of fur further study. Um, any other questions? <laughs> so, that is a really good question. So the promised land is a picture of heaven, but when the people get to the promised land, they never truly arrive at heaven. Does that make sense? So in a sense, the promised land is still a continuation. I mean, the land of Canaan is still a continuation of the Christian life, just under different conditions. Right? The people experience like swings. They experience deprivation in the wilderness, deprivation in the exile, um, experience conquest and, and oppression, but they also experience intense times of plenty and prosperity and so forth. So the same lessons apply, it's just in different contexts. Do we relate to the wilderness story more, or do we relate to people living in the land of milk and honey? Probably the latter, right? And the danger, the temptation for us is to forget the Lord. So, yeah, I think so. We live in a land flowing with um, iPhones and cars. And <laughs> Let me pray for us. Um, good question. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, you're speaking to us through laws, through dramatic stories, to tell us about Jesus Christ ultimately. And, his, and in his name we pray, amen.